Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mike Rody found himself incredibly frustrated with his note-taking efforts. Instead of trying to capture all the information he was hearing in meetings, at events, and conferences, he decided to focus on capturing only those ideas that were the most meaningful to him and that he could take action on immediately. And he decided to add visual elements to his notes. The result was sketchnoting. Listen in as Mike walks us through his story and how you can tap into the power of visual note-taking. Mike, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Rini. It's really fun to be on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, you know, I've come across you by way of, of numerous different situations. We met briefly at the World Domination Summit. Uh, your work uh, actually amazingly has been uh, a very, very early influence in what shaped the entire branding of the Unmistakable Creative. Uh, so on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, uh, your journey, your background, and how that's brought you to what you're up to in the world today? Well, uh, I can start by saying that uh, I've been a designer for a long time. I actually went to school to be a designer, and I went back in the uh, the ancient days of print design when the web didn't exist. So I actually got training as a print designer and worked for 10 years designing pretty much anything you could from uh, Miller High Life uh, packaging. So we did bottles and cans and things and um, uh, trade show stuff, business cards, logos. And so that was my formative time was growing up in, through this time where uh, technology started to have an impact on media and communications. So I was there when the Mac sort of came on the scene. I became a system manager for the little design firm I worked for. Um, and that sort of led me to uh, become a designer in different ways. It, it drew, drew me into web design shortly after that. So after about 10 years, web design became fascinating. And I ended up uh, joining a friend and worked remotely with a European uh, set of colleagues from my house. So I was one of the early remote workers and uh, found that it suited me pretty well. I ended up working for about 10 years. We did uh, stuff with companies like the European Space Agency. We built one of their early websites, um, as um, among other ones as well. Um, and that, that led me to uh, eventually, about four years ago, joining a, for a firm here in Milwaukee doing user-centered design, which is a little bit different. It's, um, it's a focus of actually watching people using tools and then based on the research that we see we make recommendations about what's working and what's not so we'll take an existing website or maybe we'll be proposing a new website and we'll have users actually come in and use it and see where they get hung up see what things work and it helps us see where people are really using a tool so we can refine it and produce it in a way that makes it usable so we are sort of the advocate for users um, we do user testing, and of course, uh, design work, which is where I come in is observing that information and then applying it to the way a website works, the experience and the interface. So that's what I do now as a professional. Um, and uh, about five years ago, six years ago, I started this thing called sketchnoting, uh, which you may have heard of. Um, it basically came from frustration. I was incredibly frustrated with the notes I'd been taking. Um, I'd gotten really into technology and was either typewriting notes, which worked fine, uh, and it, when I didn't typewrite notes, I was using a giant book and a pencil, um, partly because I felt like if I captured everything, there would be some time in the future where I could go through all that information and draw some value out of it. But the funny thing was that I never looked at the notes after I was done because they were so dense. It was like a thick forest, and I just wasn't willing to get my machete out and chop my way through to find the, the gems in this uh, overgrown forest. And so I got to a point in... Uh, early 2007, where I got incredibly frustrated and uh, decided to go in a different direction um, and decided to try something that I turned out to call sketchnoting. And that was taking a small book and a pen and uh, listening, listening for interesting information that meant something to me. Instead of trying to capture everything in the world and then later try and analyze it, I pushed the analyzation up into the moment. So I would go to an event like a conference I had a little pocket moleskin because I wanted to limit my ability to capture information. And then I used a pen, which meant that I had to be very deliberate about what I put on that paper because once the pen is on the paper, it's not going anywhere. And uh, that led to this idea of well, what happens if I analyze what I'm hearing in the moment? What, if, what happens if I listen for valuable things that are interesting to me, things that I can apply to my life tomorrow or today and capture those things? 
and then use visual elements to expand on the just plain text that I had been writing? What if I drew pictures and use typography, which I love to do, um, integrating icons into the text so it becomes more of a visual document, something that is a map of what I'm thinking in that moment. Uh, and from that, that led me to uh, opportunities to write a couple of books, the Sketchnote Handbook and the Sketchnote Workbook, and teach classes and, and speak and do workshops. So that's kind of where I am right now. I'm working as a designer and sort of trying to promote this idea of sketchnoting, getting people to try it and uh, explore the idea that their ideas are valuable and worth capturing visually. Hmm. So, you know what, I, I want to go back to before where the story begins, actually, and, and talk about maybe a part of your story you didn't really bring up, which is early, early childhood influences, schooling and all of that, um, and the kinds of things that actually connected the dots that led you down this path. That's a really interesting uh, question. Um, as a kid, I drew all the time. So I think that has been a constant in my life. I've always drawn something. Um, I was the kid who, uh, if I wanted a newspaper, I actually created my own. I'd draw it or, or build it, use a typewriter and make my own uh, newspaper. Or we, uh, of course, I was in the comic books and I had friends that were in the comics. We had our own little comic book series that we would produce and share with each other. We used uh, letter size, U.S. letter size paper folded in quarters and then build these little uh, comic books and we would create all kinds of crazy characters and share these with with each other um, another funny story is when I was uh, probably about 12 years old we lived in an apartment in Chicago and we were in the bottom floor and oddly enough in our room we had um, we had uh, windows at the top of the room because we were in the basement of course and uh, I was really influenced by these crazy hot rod t-shirts which were popular at the time in the 70s and uh, I I did some of those, but I did all kinds of other drawings, and I would put them in the windows that we had in our room, and I would sell them for like a nickel. And uh, at the end of the summer, uh, we would save up all the money, and then we would go to a local, uh, like a snack shop, and I would buy all my friends snacks, and, and we would enjoy the fruits of my labors at the end of the summer. So that was a very mem memorable thing that I think all those things tied to what I do now, um, always being encouraged to draw and never, you know, I was never declined with it. I. I'm sure that I ran into challenges at school where maybe I was drawing, but I, I liked school, so I think I found a way to adapt to it. I was never was never challenged out of me or beaten out of me like by a teacher trying to get me to not doodle, at least that I remember. So I think I was fortunate in that I was able to maintain sort of this drawing as part of my expression, even when I was a little kid all the way through into college and uh, into my professional life. So let me ask you this about the, the comic book series. You know, you're a kid who has this desire to see something exist in the world and you just went and did it. And I think that all of us still have that in us as adults. I mean, this show exists because I had a desire to see something exist in the world. What I'm really interested in is one, navigating sort of the psychological and emotional barriers that keep us from doing those things that we want to see exist in the world. And I mean, you've embraced that since you were a kid. So I'm really curious how you've maintained it throughout your life. I think it's uh, a little bit of uh, just grit in trying to, I, I don't think I could not draw. Like it's something that just has to come out and it's going to come out one way or another. And I've found ways because I've been, I guess, pretty good at negotiating <laughs> to, uh, to maintain it in my life. Either I do it on my own time or uh, I integrate it into my, my working life. And I think um, the thing that I'm discovering um, that's related to this is when I do workshops with people, I always ask, you know, who does who thinks they can't draw and tons of hands go up. And what I'm most excited about at the end of the workshop is seeing people actually drawing things and expressing their ideas and feeling really confident about their ability. I think so what that tells me is that there is an innate ability when we were kids that we learned how to draw to some level. Some people go farther than others based on their situation. Maybe some, you know, choose to or you know, are directed away from it at some point, maybe in junior high or something. But underneath uh, everyone, every adult is sort of this ability to, to draw. And I think that relates even to creativity beyond just drawing. It's thinking in a way like child, children think, you know, they, they play to explore ideas and they play to explore what they're thinking. And that may come out as drawings or it come, could come out as games or what have you. Um, so it's sort of deep inside of us. And I think uh, the thing is to sort of identify what was, what, if I was a little kid, what would I do in this situation or what, how would I think about it? It's sort of that mentality, like going back to the basics and 
and sort of leaving the limitations of an adult behind just for a little while, almost as an experiment. That, that I think, is maybe the way that I get tap in, tapping into this space that gets me drawing and thinking in a different way. Hmm. I love that. Uh, you know, the other thing you brought up was this idea of these hot rod influences. Uh, and I'm thinking about this through the lens of, you know, what we consume uh, as, as producers uh, of different art and how we basically find and connect the dots between, you know, the art that we consume, the media that we consume, and then bring in, I guess, what are the thumbprints from those things into the work that we do in the world? Well, I'm always on the I'm always on the lookout for interesting things. Um, just this week, uh, I learned about uh, this guy named Danny Gregory, really great uh, sketch artist, through a friend, and they have a course, an online course with the community um, called Sketchbook School. And basically, it's uh, these I think there's five or six uh, sketchers who teach their process, and they built sort of an online community with video lessons that get released over time. Um, and the minute the minute I saw it, I just knew that I had to sign up for it. I think it was ninety nine dollars. But I thought, from my perspective, there was tons of value in a lot of different directions. Number one, as sort of a leader in this community of sketchnoting, I feel like I need to keep pushing myself to do new things and to explore the edges of where I've been. Because if I just stay in the same place, you know, at some point it's not going to be as interesting. Or you know, I need to. I feel like I need to push myself. But on the other hand, by signing up for this, I'm learning how did these people produce something that people are signing up for that are making a community. I'm really fascinated by the intersection of community and creativity. I think there's a lot of power in that. And I think there's um, the sense of uh, being able to encourage each other. There's so much uh, where people feel alone and having a community to encourage them. I know our sketchnote community, we really try and encourage people to try it, even if their drawing quality isn't great because it's more about the doing of it than the result of it, right? It's the thinking part of it. So, um, I think the the fact that I'm sort of always seeking these new things says to me that I'm interested in exploring. I think that's a huge part of it, is exploring and looking for things in unusual places that can maybe give me ideas about um, how I can either pursue my business or to keep myself challenged. Um, I know my friend Austin Cleon um, did something uh, last year that he mentioned and I finally saw it, and that was a logbook. He suggested doing a logbook for the year. And I finally finished my first logbook this year and it's completely full. And it's like one of my most valuable treasured items. I had my kids draw in the back of it on empty pages. My wife is currently sort of writing a page of her own and uh, that's going to go on the shelf as a reference. So if I ever want to go back and look at what 2014 was like, I could page through this, you know, book full of my entries and my thoughts and sketches and things. So allowing myself to sort of experiment is a really huge part of this. And I think that may be for other people as well, whatever it is, if it's uh, trying ice skating for the first time or whatever it is, you can sometimes bring yourself into a different place and think of things in a different way just by doing little experiments. And I think that's maybe the way that, that I connect those together. Hmm. You know, it, that's really interesting you say that because what I've often found ends up being uh, highly influential, oddly enough, in anything I do business related is often nothing to do with business. Uh, it comes from various art forms, uh, you know, movies, uh, you know, actual, you know, visual art, and all of those things have made a big difference uh, in the way I create what I create in the world. And I, and I think it, like I look at it as a diversity of inputs leading to basically a, a much richer internal ecosystem in your brain. Yeah, I would agree. I think, um, sort of exposing yourself to things, a variety of things, music, film, art, all these things, um, direct you in a, in a certain way. And you may not be able to put your finger on them. Not that that's necessarily important, but you know, little moments. Um, I just saw a, a movie called, um, is it called the hundred step journey? I think it was. It was oh, about an Indian family. Yeah. yeah. Now the moment for me in that film that really sort of touched me or hit me was there was a point where um, this guy had to cook without using his hands. He had to tell someone else to do the cooking. And the thing that I took away from that was, wow, this guy is so good at what he does that he doesn't even have to do the work. He can tell someone else to do it, and it produces something that's like like he's sort of channeling himself through this other person. And I thought that was really. An interesting idea. So that that would be an example of where I'm inspired by something I might see in a film. And like I thought, like, how could I, me as a producer, how can I do that? Like, is there something I can do where 
I can channel my direction into someone else, like my daughter or someone in a workshop that brings them. So not only it's not so much to like say, oh, look how good of a something I am, but it's more like they get to get to experience it along with me. And it shows your mastery because you're willing to share that with someone else. That was a really fascinating moment. I mean, that's just like, I don't know, two minutes in the movie or three minutes or something. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you about this logbook concept. Uh, I'm guessing the question on a lot of people's mind is, okay, I want to create my own logbook. How would we go about doing that? Well, I think you first, you obviously have to start with some kind of uh, material to put it in a book is nice because it can be carried around. I chose for the first year, uh, one of these Moleskine um, large daily uh, calendar, I guess they call it. Uh, they do do weekly ones. So you can, you know, choosing how you do it is really up to you. I know um, I just listened to the five minute journal uh, yesterday. And so I'm, I'm actually going to try some of those techniques in my journal. This year I chose uh, something called a Hobonichi Teko and it's a Japanese um, diary journal. I'm not sure what, what it's called, but it's a little bit smaller. It's got really great paper and uh, I'm starting to enjoy that one as well. But the first thing you need to start with is some kind of book. It doesn't have to be fancy. I mean, it could be, you know, uh, just a spiral bound notebook. It could be a field note. It could be anything. Um, that it's nice when it's a, the one thing I would say about having a daily journal of some kind that's designed to be a journal um, is it's going to be marked with dates. So you can sort of have a structure and not have to think about dating it or any of that stuff. That stuff's already on the page. And then the way that I approach it is I never was very successful with diaries. So like this idea, dear diary today, I did this and that I would always eventually run out of steam. Like I would get to February and like, I don't want to enter anything. And then there'd be like three weeks of blank. Right. Um, I think the thing that was really important that Austin Cleon taught me was he treats it less like at the end of the day where you write all the stuff you did. I think in a lot of ways, the five minute journal sort of ties us in. You start the day by writing certain things, you are your expectations, and then you follow up at the end of the day to say, how did things go and what could I do better? Right. Um, and in the middle, the logbook that uh, that Austin talks about is logging the things as they happen. I think that's a huge thing. Uh, twist on it. So if you wait till the end of the day, you're going to be tired. Maybe you're not going to write it. Like a five minute journal is beautiful because it's so small that you can sort of sneak it in there. But if you feel this burden of a huge page that's empty and now I've got to fill it with something, that can be a lot of pressure. And I think that maybe was what, you know, I was having a challenge with. So by turning it around and writing things down as the day progresses or thinking of it that way, even just thinking that this is a place for me to write things as they happen, like you know, I had to call help support this morning to fix the PC that couldn't dial in remotely. So I wrote the phone number right in my book and other things, you know, it's like everyday things. But the beauty is when you come back and you look at those entries, they become richer because they are the everyday things, right? It's not like you're not filtering yourself. I think the problem, uh, for instance, that, that happens with Facebook is everybody's showing, you know, their Martha Stewart lives, right? It's like perfect and nothing's wrong and my kids are beautiful and everything's wonderful. The beauty about this daily log where you're logging like the everyday stuff is it sort of takes away that artifice and it gives you really what was my day like? Um, what did I experience? Um, and I think that for me was really helpful to turn, the, it sort of pivot the thinking from Dear Diary to, hey, as a logbook, I'm like a, I'm just a worker and I'm writing the stuff that's happening because I might want to refer to it later. And that really helped me mentally to capture in a different way. So a book in a good pen. I would say if you really want to try it, um, get a nice book and a nice pen because when you use really nice book and a nice pen, you're probably going to want to spend time with it. Um, and I think the next thing is just to write stuff down. Like don't get too precious about it. I think the challenge a lot of times with moleskin notebooks is they are so beautiful that you don't want to ruin them. But mm -hmm. I think if you get to the point where, Hey, I'm just experimenting. It was 10 bucks, you know, 10 bucks is gone now. I'm just going to start using it and sort of taking an experimental mindset where you're just going to try it, I think really helps because there's less pressure to feel like you have to deliver anything. And then finally, it's it's for you, right? It's something that you're going to look at in the future. You're not going to put it online. It's, you know, maybe your grandkids will look at it and think it's fascinating to see what grandpa did when he was working. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a really important thing. I w I'll wrap up this sort of discussion about diaries with one story. Uh, my wife and I went away for our anniversary one year, and we went to a bed and breakfast, and we were sort of exploring the room that we didn't rent, and uh, we noticed a little book on the on the mantelpiece or on the dresser, and we picked it up, and I started reading it. It turned out to be the diary of a 
18-year-old woman in 1908 living in Milwaukee. And it was, it was fascinating. It was riveting. We read through the whole thing that night. We couldn't stop reading. And we would read it out to each other. We got to the end and we were like, wow, that was maybe one of the best stories we've ever read. She had all kinds of things happening. We had a sense of what Milwaukee was like 100 years before. And uh, so that I looked at that and thought, wow, that was really impactful. Like I felt like I saw a little piece of that woman's story and that made me want to try and do it. Um, and it didn't work until just last year, but um, sort of that that's another encouragement that maybe these simple things that we don't think much of are maybe the most valuable things for others around us, our family and kids and grandkids. And that's, that's sort of an encouragement maybe to give it a try and, and just explore it. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate what you said about not wanting to make, uh, you know, damage to a beautiful moleskin because I, I only know this because my handwriting is absolutely hideous. And <laughs> I used to always dread the fact that all my moleskins would be filled with this god awful chicken scratch. And then I finally got over it. And I, I to this day, I'm still always using a moleskin notebook for something or other. Uh I think one of the things that's really interesting that I keep seeing as a theme uh, throughout all of our conversation is this concept of constraints. Uh, the fact that you use a little notebook on purpose. And I really want to talk about bringing these kinds of constraints into our lives and our work and our art in order to extract what is the most meaningful and what are the things that have you know uh, serious significance for you as a creator. I think that's a really good observation because I think that's driven my life. And as a designer, if you, you know, other designers who may be listening to this, you realize that your whole life is basically driven by constraints and limitations. I think everybody is in a lot of ways, right? But as designers, we sort of come face to face with it every day. You know, I've got a, I'm working on a website and there's branding guidelines that I have to follow. I can't just make things up. I have to use that typeface and those colors. And, you know, within that structure, I have to be creative. And that's actually really encouraging, I think. A lot of times having limitations allows you to be creative in a different way. Sort of this boxing yourself in um, is a good thing. It can be um, both with limitations on what you can do or not do, like using a small notebook or, in my case, using a pen instead of a pencil. So when I put something on the page, you know, either I have to, I have to think about it and go slowly and produce it well, or if I goof it up, you know, it's there for me to remind me that I'm not perfect or I turn it into a little drawing and I cover it up, right? I've got a couple of options, but they're limited, right? Um, I think uh, time is another way to have a constraint, right? One of the things that I discovered in, and shared in the new book, the workbook, are these challenges that I provide for readers to do. So, and I've had a chance to use these in many um, little workshops and the two that I've used that have, have been a lot of fun, one is to take a time-limited space of two and a half minutes and you draw uh, your um, treehouse. So you have an imaginary treehouse. There's no limitations. You know, it doesn't have to be realistic. And I time the people and I let them know as the time counts down and they have two and a half minutes and then I stop and then, um, then I'll do it again. And then we get to the end and they show their work. And there's another one that we do where you sort of develop a lemonade stand. But it's really important that we have these time limits on it because if you're left to have hours and hours to fool around with it, you know, you're going to get distracted. It's, there's sort of this pressure of time that sort of gets you moving and it gets you out of your own way in some ways. And I learned that back in college. I had a, a life drawing teacher and he had this similar technique where he would start, we would first have like five minutes to draw a figure, an object, and then he would progressively shorten the time. So we'd start with maybe five minutes, then he'd say, all right, now you got three minutes. And then we got down to the place where we were sketching it in 30 seconds. And the funny thing was, is that you would think that the one where you had five minutes to sort of explore and do all this beautiful texturing uh, was not as good as the 30-second sketch. So, like, the, the, the progression of sort of slowly reducing the time probably had an impact. But also, the fact that you're doing it in such a short time, it forces you to find what's the most important, what's that, the key thing about that that I need to capture, uh, and I think that's what time provides for us as a constraint is it forces you to sort of forego all the, all the detail, all the, you know, the details of making yourself look good and it just gets you down to work. And then it sort of gets you in a space where you have to observe and react. You don't have time to think too much about it because a lot of times in some ways the thinking is what sort of holds us up where, oh, what is, what's someone going to think if I draw this or if I do it that way? You just do it, right? You, and you deal with that stuff afterwards. And a lot of times getting out of your own way provides uh, new insights that 
maybe you wouldn't have seen if you would have been careful and worried about making yourself presentable or whatever it is. I think that's a real key to sketchnoting too is you're capturing these things for yourself and you're limiting your space and you're trying to do it in the moment. So that has another limitation, but it sort of gets you to the place where you're in the mode of observing and you're capturing things and really understanding them in a different way than you might normally if you had all the time in the world. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So I actually want to come back to this idea of observing and capturing. But before we do that, um, I, I want to go back to one of the earlier parts of the conversation where you had mentioned that you came from sort of this world of non-internet, non-computer based, non-sort of technical, uh, I guess if you could call it that, uh, design. And I'm really interested in how designing those types of things and working on those kinds of things has influenced and shaped the the way you do the work that you do today and, and what we might take away from something like that? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, that reminds me of a moment uh, one summer when we were all working. We had had computers for a couple of years and the power went out in the whole neighborhood uh, and everybody else was sitting around sort of twiddling their thumbs. And because I had this background in sketching, um, I just got out the book and started sketching and you know I didn't need Cork Express, whatever we were using at the time. So I could immediately in that moment see the value of being able to sketch out ideas and sort of think visually. Um, I think one of the things that I, I can maybe observe from that time was 
um, it gave me lots of options. So one of the things that I would observe about uh, students who maybe had come through a digital design course where they were really heavily dependent on the computer was they really didn't think in any other way. Like they had to have the computer and it was sort of a dependency in a way. Um, and, and, you know, that's one of the things that I'm trying to encourage when people sketch is there's other ways to come up with ideas. You don't have to have a computer to do it. It can be writing or sketching or anything, even mapping ideas out. Uh, by using something that's very basic and simple, you can go anywhere and do it. You don't need batteries. It doesn't have to charge up. It's never going to run out. You know, you can be in the cafe for hours with a, with a pad of paper and a pen and, you know, build, uh, you know, anything you might, might want to because really it's the thinking part of it. Uh, and so having this ability to work outside the computer in this specific sense provides you with a way of challenging yourself to think. I mean, again, it's a, a constraint or a limitation by taking away this thing that you're really good at, which maybe is a computer. How does that change your thinking? If you have to slow down, I think that's a, what a lot of people will say about sort of this physical journaling where you're writing in a book or you're even sketchnoting or sketching or anything like that. You're sort of, your mind is forced to kind of slow down and process things in a different way. It's not necessarily better or worse. It's just different, but it does provide you with a counterpoint to maybe if you're used to sitting down and hammering out a blog post by just typing it out, that's got value, but it might be interesting to think of the same idea from the perspective of what if I don't have a computer? What if I have a book and a pen and I need to sort of think through these ideas? How does that change what I think of and how does that change what things end up coming out of the process? Um, so that was something I learned. Um, I, I think it also made me very creative in what I, how I approach things because um, we, had, we had really limited stuff in college. Um, we had a typesetter that I think had eight or 12 typefaces total, and they were not real great. Um, so when I would have projects, we had a camera and we had type books. So there were these specimen books that would show all these typefaces. And we'd pick our favorite typefaces and go into this camera and you could do perfect black and white photo sh uh, shots of them that were ready for production. So we would take our type book, we would find a typeface we want, stick it in this camera and then shoot it like 30 times and then produce 30 films. And then we'd cut each letter by hand and lay it out. It was tons of tedious work, you know, it, we had to go through and cut them out and you'd have to make the letters line up right. But the beauty was if I had 12 typefaces, I could pick any typeface in the world that I wanted and shoot it and put it together. And I could look just like, you know, a professional designer in New York City um, with this manual technique. I was willing to give up the time to do it where someone else maybe would spec it out and they would have the typeface and they could produce it. So it sort of forced me in a lot of ways to be creative about how I solve problems. And I think that's been really valuable, like not necessarily following the path that's immediately available to you. But if I was challenged to do this and I didn't have something that I normally do, how does that change how I solve it? And maybe that's, maybe that turns out to be a better solution than the typical way that I would normally do. So. You know, that's, it's really interesting you bring that up because uh, if you look at any of sort of the best people who do work in design, Gar Reynolds talks about this in Presentation Zen uh, and the fact that he never starts uh, a presentation uh, on a computer. He starts it with pen and paper. Uh, Johnny Ive apparently doesn't even turn on a computer at his desk where he designs all these Apple products. And I, I noticed any time I needed to really get clear on how I want something designed, even if I can't design it myself, uh, if I could sketch it, I could communicate it way more effectively to the person who would ultimately mm -hmm. end up building it. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. Um, one of the things when I'm done with a workshop and people have drawn out something, I'm you know, if it's a small group, everybody presents. If it's a big group, they come up in the front and we project. And they have to go through and explain what they design. And it's really fun. The people who do this and they come up, it, it always ends up in people laughing. And they do silly things with like a treehouse. Like one guy who was a fisherman, he built a huge deck and he placed his, you know, treehouse by a river. And he had a hole in the deck so he could go fishing anytime he wanted. You know, and people were laughing at that. But it was really interesting to see his solution to this problem. Um the other thing I would say is as a person who uses tools um, professionally, you know, Adobe Photoshop or Illustrator, those kind of things, they're incredibly powerful and they can do tons of great stuff. But I think the danger that I see having come from this analog world is um, you tend to let yourself be put into the flow of the tool that you use, right? So 
if when I go into Photoshop, there's a tendency for me to fall into these ruts, I guess you might say, of doing things a certain way, where if I don't have a computer on and I've got paper, in a lot of ways, that opens up the world to pretty much any idea that I might come up with. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, um, you know, I've done a lot of logo design work and icon design work. And part of the process for me is I, I write a lot of text about what the, you know, what the brief is. And then I get a sketchbook and I sit at a coffee shop or whatever and I sketch ideas and I let my mind kind of roam and I explore stuff. And I capture all the crazy stuff. That, uh, that's, that's a terrible idea, but okay, let's do it. And sometimes those actually turn out to be good solutions. But even if they're terrible ideas, the value of a sheet of ideas and a couple of them are terrible is if you don't sort of go down that rabbit hole, you don't know that it's a bad idea. And when you go down it, you're like, oh, this is, yeah, this is not going to work. But I'm glad I did this because now I know I can let that go. And it pushes me in the direction of the idea that's good, right? So identifying ideas that don't work is almost as valuable as the ones that do because it's going to narrow your choices, right? Mm -hmm. And um, having this flexibility to work in an analog way, um, in this specific case, we're talking about you know, computers and analog, right? There, it's not again. It's not that one is better than the other. They just they direct us in different ways. So I feel, at least for me, that when I sketch, I'm more open to trying different things, and I'm not limited in any way by software what it can or can't do. I sort of release those those bounds, um, and it lets me explore things. And then I'm pushed to like, can I actually produce this thing? Like, is this too crazy to produce, or is it possible? Like, maybe it actually pushes me in a direction that I didn't think I could even produce simply because I let go of the limitations of the tool. So one of the things that's really interesting to me about this is that you've brought up over and over this uh, capacity to capture and observe. Um, and I guess really what I want to talk about is, is how do we cultivate on an ongoing basis our own ability to observe the world around us and capture uh, the things that can mm -hmm. be valuable or important? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know if I have all the answers to that. I would say that... Um, a lot of it has to do with mindset, um, being in a place where you observe weird things. Like the like, if you sort of put yourself in a mindset, like for instance, when I will walk to work, sometimes I'll say, "All right, I need to take a picture of something." I don't know what that's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be a good picture, but I have to find something interesting in my walk from in from the car into the office, which is you know three minute walk, um, and it's sort of that challenge of having to observe. And once you sort of get into this mode of observing, um, you observe more things. It's sort of a self-fulfilling thing, I guess, in a way. Um, and then you start noticing weird things like, I don't know, uh, we had a <laughs> we had a girl that came over to visit our family. We were driving by a local shop and the, the name of the shop is the Underwater Connection. It's a scuba shop, but she misread the sign and she thought it said Underwear Connection. And I just thought that was really funny. You know, we all laughed about it, but um, sort of remembering that moment, it's interesting if you misunderstand what something is, it can often spark an idea about like, why, you know, why would there be an underwear store, you know, in this, in this neighborhood and what would they sell? And like, who would their clients be? Like, it takes you down this path of exploring, like, what would that mean if that was true? Right. It's sort of, uh, it's playing. It's like what kids do when they play, except you're doing it mentally. Um, and it sort of puts you in the mindset of looking for things that are unusual and I think, at least for myself, when I put myself in that mindset, the more I do it, the more I observe things like funny things in, you know, in the, the magazine on an airplane, like weird things that you'd see in there might make you think in a different way. And I think that's really valuable because as you start observing these unusual things, it gets your mind into that mindset. It's even like watching TV shows or movies, sort of observing these unusual things may lead you to other things you couldn't have predicted. And I think that's really valuable. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Well, let's do this. Um, let, let's go back to the beginning part of the story and then we'll bring it up to, you know, what leads to, you know, the sketchnote handbook uh, and the work that you're currently doing today. One of the other things that you brought up is uh, two things that are interesting to me. One is, you know, being sort of this early remote worker. Uh, I'd really be interested in hearing sort of what your views are on the way we're going to work in the future uh, based on having been so early to what seems to be more and more of a standard today and kind of what your thoughts are on the economy and, and the job market and, and, you know, what I guess Seth Godin calls a connection economy. Yeah, I think I, I align quite a bit with what Seth believes, uh, this idea. I think uh, Dan Pink had a book a while ago called, I think it was Freelance Nation or something like that, mm -hmm. um, that they we're moving in this direction where 
you know, individuals are going to be sort of selling themselves individually um, as, you know, sole proprietors and doing work, whether they like it or not. You know, right now I'm working on a contract inside a large insurance company. You know, I work for a small company in Milwaukee and we've been contracted to come in and do work. So we're in a corporate environment and we're helping the corporation do work, but we are, you know, we're not employees. They don't have to pay our benefits. You know, that's incumbent on the company I work for and myself, right? Um, so on one hand, we sort of act like corporate employees and we have to follow a lot of those rules. But on the other hand, we have some freedoms that employees don't have. Like, you know, if I want to work half a day today because I've got meetings on something else, you know, I set that up and I can do that, you know, within reason as long as I'm delivering my work. So um, I think this idea of sort of contractors maybe is the way things are going, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, working someplace for 20, 30 years and retiring is, uh, you know, there's a few people, there's a few companies that can pull that off, but I think it's fewer and fewer. And I think uh, it's really important uh, that you think of yourself and the skills that you have um, as being available for sale and not in the weird sense, but like, that you have value. There's things that you know and that you can do that provide value to someone else that they can't do. Um, I think, and specifically for myself, when I did my books, I have friends. I have a friend that's written script for video, and so I hired him to do scripts for me. Now he just did that on the side. He's has a regular day job, but he did that at night, and um, he's been really happy with having been part of it. I had another guy who's a friend who does soundtracks, so I hired him to do soundtracks for my video. Um, you know, the publisher actually didn't pay pay for that. I took it out of my own money to do that because I thought it was really valuable. Um, and I saw value in that. And that provided them some additional income. It wasn't a ton of money, but, you know, uh, thinking of yourself in that way, that there's stuff that all of us have that have value in some way or another. And maybe it's not getting paid. Maybe it's in trade. Like I do something for you and you do something for me um, can be a valuable way to cement a connection with someone. And then maybe in the future that leads to a bigger project because, you've worked on something together. Now you know that you can trust them and you work well together. So it's an opportunity to sort of uh, expand and explore. And I think part of that is remote working. I think, uh, I think it was, um, who was it? There was someone who was mentioning that we do more remote work than we realize. Think of all the servers that we use. They're not in our buildings where we are. They're somewhere else. We're using the internet to connect to them. The people that we talk to, maybe they're in the same city, but in a different building, or maybe they're on the other side of the world. We may not even know where those people are. So a lot of the things that we're doing are already remote. So if we think of it from a remote mindset, I think that can be helpful to think in ways that you can work that aren't necessarily on a certain site or with certain tools. It sort of frees you up to be valuable wherever you are. So I think that this is a definite direction that things are going. Maybe it's slower in some, some you know, environments, some professions than others. Um, but having this ability or it's sort of the mindset that you are responsible for making yourself valuable is a really good thing to have one way or another, whether it's within, you know, within a company as an employee to think of yourself as sort of your own little company that you're producing some value for that company. Or if you're an independent person who's doing it for clients, many clients, um, it's still the same central idea. Thinking, thinking like an owner of your own little firm is always going to be going to be valuable because you think of things differently than if you're just an employee coming in to do work and you're depending on someone else to take care of everything. Mm -hmm. I think eventually that can, there can be danger in that because you won't see things coming and then you're surprised and now you got to scramble. So it's, it's really a mindset, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let's do this. Let, let's talk about this whole concept of user-centered design briefly um, and what the implications of that are for us, even if say we're not designers in the traditional sense, because I would imagine there's some incredibly valuable lessons. I mean, me as a podcaster could be taking away, uh, from that concept of user-centered design. Well, I think, uh, let's, let's take you for instance, um, having a podcast, like how do you know whether you're reaching people, you get feedback from people directly. Um, how do you know that maybe there could be a slightly better way that you do things or, you know, maybe it would make sense to do some kind of a test. Like um, there's a company called usertesting.com. They have a little service called Peak and they you buy credits and you can have random people from the internet check your website or I suppose you could probably have them listen to a podcast and give you feedback on what they liked and don't like or how they, you know, you observe. The beauty of Peak in, in this case is you actually have a video. You watch people kind of going around your site and you see where they're getting hung up. And they talk their way through like what they think and what they're what they're feeling. You know, it's got 
it's got value to it. It's m- maybe more valuable to have people in the room where you can observe and ask them questions. Um, one of the things that we are always taught with user-centered design sort of usability testing is we don't provide the people with the answer. We just ask more questions to kind of get at the root of why they're having a challenge or what their question is. Um, because we want to see, like, if they're going to be hung up on something, we want to see that. Um, that shows us where there's friction and where can we polish the edge or maybe that maybe there's something that's blocking them that needs to be removed or restructured. Um, so in that case, you know, feedback is a good thing. Criticism is a good thing because it helps you improve the thing that you want to. Um, I always look at that. I, it's been a re- revelation for me in the last maybe five or six years. Like as a younger designer, I would get really frustrated when clients would challenge me and, you know, we would have to go in a different direction. I'd get frustrated. I wouldn't always show that, but I would get frustrated like, oh man, I got to do this over. Now I sort of embrace like, you know, as much as I can, um, criticism or challenging on the work that I do, because I know that it's going to make it better if it's true constructive criticism, right? It's, they really want it to be the best it can be and they're giving their opinion. So I think when we look at criticism from that perspective, it provides us value that helps us improve things. Um, so I think, you know, all the tools that we use could be improved. There's, there could be tons of usability testing on everything that we use. There's, you know, I'm certainly sure that you've run into something that's frustrated you before and you thought it could be done better. And, you know, this, the whole web thing that we're in the middle of is so early. That's such an early time for us and it's going to keep on growing and improving. And hopefully that will be something that's part of it. Hmm. So let's do this. Let's shift gears and let's talk sort of about the the journey that leads to the Sketchnote handbook and and everything that you're kind of known for in the world today. All right. So um, so we sort of left off uh, 2007 when I started experimenting with Sketchnoting. I had this little book and a pen at a conference in Chicago. Um, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I, th- I was worried that my hand would cramp up after doing all this work. Um, I didn't know, would I enjoy it? Would it be fun? Would I be frustrated that I couldn't capture more? Um, what I found is I really loved it. Um, I had limitations, as you mentioned, um, but it would freed me because I was listening for concepts, things that resonated with me. I didn't feel the burden to capture everything. That was a really key thing. That Because I wasn't capturing everything and listening for the things that were meaningful to me, it gave me a little bit of time between those meaningful elements to draw and to uh, embellish the ideas using, you know, drawings, um, pictures, and using typography to sort of make the ideas more refined. Um, and by the time I got done, I think I had maybe eight pages uh, from the conference, and the key ideas were captured there, and I had a blast doing it. Um, my brain was actually more tired than my hand because of, you know, I wasn't used to that kind of analysis in the moment. But it was sort of that tired of, you know, after you've run a race or ridden a bike, and you're, you're tired, but you feel great about it because you feel like you've really fulfilled what you're what you were made to do and that in that moment that's kind of what I started to feel like um so I just started experimenting more I went to more conferences um I went to a 37 signals conference that's where I met uh, Jason Freed and David Hansen who eventually hired me to do the illustrations for uh rework and remote uh and in the other books as well like Chris Gillibo's $100 startup that that those led to that so even along the way just doing sketch noting ended up leading to future things that I couldn't have predicted. Um, eventually, I was doing it so much that um, I had people that were hiring me to come in and do it. So South by Southwest brought me in and gave me a badge and, and, and just let me roam around. I ended up producing in a week, I think it was 68 pages. Uh, we made an app out of it with another partner, and, uh, which is not available anymore. But it was interesting to see how just sort of one thing led to another. Um, eventually, that led to doing, you know, more of these. And then at, at, you know, about seven years later, I had this, well, it was about like five years later, I had the opportunity to run into a guy who was published uh, with Peach Pit and we had dinner in Portland. He said, Hey, you got to, you got to do a book with this sketch noting stuff. Do you mind if I introduce you to my acquisitions editor? I said, yeah, sure. Let's, let's do it. Let's see what happens. So he did. And the next thing you know, I had a proposal and it was approved and I had, I was, you know, set to produce my first book. And, uh, I had no clue how to do a book. I'm, I was never an author before. I certainly had done work on books before, but never had written one. And because I was a designer who had print design background, I had the ability to um, actually do all the production. So uh, so that was a little bit more unusual. So within nine months, um, 
I wrote the book. We got the script approved. Everything looked really good. Um, I did all the sketches. I basically sketched the whole book out uh, in rough pencil form uh, and used that to sort of show my editors what I was doing. And that really was helpful. And then that also helped me as I started to draw the pieces. So I knew what elements I needed to draw and how that fit together with the typography. Uh, one of the other interesting things about the book series is um, I realized, having been a production designer, that one of the pains is having to redo work. And you never want to redo work if you can get away with it. So one of my solutions was, hey, I've got the, I'd love to do a typeface, but I don't know who can help me. So I reached out to Twitter and a friend connected me with uh, Del Witherington, who helped uh, take my handwriting and turn it into a typeface. And that made a huge difference in the production part because I had a typeface I could lay out and size and adjust everything. And that made it possible for me to do revisions, you know, even in the last few minutes, in the last few hours before production, we could go in and make a change. Um, so I did all the design work. I delivered the files to Peach Pit, who's my publisher, and they produced the book. Um, and it's done really well. It's um, translated into Russian and German and Chinese just released. Uh, Czech is coming in spring. Um, and it led to a second book as well called The Sketchnote Workbook, which is taking the idea of sketchnoting and expanding it in a lot of different directions. Like, can you use it for planning? Can you use it for ideation? What about travel and capturing food experiences? So um, that whole process sort of started slowly. And now it's sort of moved into a new space where now I'm really excited about teaching these concepts, um, doing live workshops around the country and maybe in Europe this year, we'll see. And then uh, maybe doing some kind of an online course of some kind. I don't know when that might happen. But uh, so that's sort of where it's at right now. So I think the the big thing for me that that stands out in all of this is grit. Uh, you know, a seven-year journey in which you start something with no idea where it's going to lead and you just stick with it. And I guess the question for me is, how do you stick with it when there's actually nothing happening? That's the that's probably the key to it, right? The yeah. the the hardest grit point is when you feel like nothing's going. I think so. The thing that I that I learned in the first book and was reiterated to me in the second book was this idea of making progress every day. Maybe that's that may also tie to why logbooks make sense to me because every day you're just logging a little bit of what happened that day. Um, the thing I discovered with the books uh, was. Hey, look, I can't, this is something that I cannot write. I cannot do a weekend and pull off a book. You just can't do it. It's too big. Um, so I had to break it down into chunks. So I had to do some planning and figure out, okay, at what point should I have this done? And what point should I have that done? And then from there, break it down into smaller atomic pieces and sort of have the sense of where I more or less should be. But then the idea that um, you every day make a little progress. There were certainly nights where I would go to bed at 1 a.m. and I would have, you know, a couple of pages were done near the end. And I would just have to say, you know, I feel satisfied. I got a couple pages more done. It's one less that I have to do. And as I would progress through it, I would just believe that, you know, I'm going to deliver this. Um, sort of a lot of it had to be, you know, imagining the future where this book would be done and I'd be, you know, getting my accolades in the crowd or whatever, whatever stuff I would use to convince myself this is going to be worth it in the end. Um, sort of helped me on those days where things didn't go well to just keep on moving. Now, um, during the workbook, we had sort of a crazy thing happen. Uh, my wife had uh, something happen with her lower back when she uh, got sick and um, we had to go in and she had to have emergency surgery on her lower back and had part of her disc removed. And um, it was incredibly uh, difficult. We, um, we had my parents coming up here and watching the kids. We had friends from uh, the church we attend they were coming over and just helping us out all the time. And it was really tough. There was a point there where I just was thinking like, is this book like going to happen? Cause we're now three weeks behind and I've got like, there's not a lot of margin for error. And, you know, I just went back to the first book and thought, you know what, I, I just have to keep moving and rely on my process, make progress every day. And that was sort of what got me out of it was once we, once I got back to work, I just had to find ways to make it work. Like any moment that I could work on it, I did. And maybe that's where, you know, having worked remotely or sort of working in this analog way where you sort of find, you know, any opportunity to make progress is really important. So in this case, whenever I could work on it, when my wife would go to sleep or the kids were sleeping, then I would go and hammer on this book. And, you know, I had people coming over and watching the kids so I could do work. And, you know, I had certainly had a huge network of people that made it possible. And that's probably the other revelation with grit is that you're not alone in it. Um, there's a lot of people that are there 
that want you to succeed. I had people encouraging me on Twitter and all kinds of places, friends that I knew, sort of encouraging me and offering to do things for me so that I could pull it off because they knew how important this was for me. Um, and having that that network of people around me really gave me the the reason to do the grit. Like I'm doing it for them in a lot of ways. Um, I think that was really helpful. And having you know a small team that we had, they were really encouraging and they never let me get down too far. And you know, I just kept on hammering forward one day at a time. And that's, I think that's what it is. It's just sort of taking the moment for what it is and taking as much positive. I think that's why I resonate with this uh, the five minute journal thing I heard yesterday. It's sort of just accept the day for what it is. Think about how you can improve it tomorrow. And then when the, when the sun comes up, you hammer at it again. And next thing you know, you got a book like, wow, where'd that come from? But it was just a process of slowly chipping away and just being encouraged that you're eventually going to get there and not giving up. Yeah, I mean, I think you really, I mean, to me, the biggest takeaway from that is how important community um, yeah. plays in your ability to, a role community plays in your ability to keep going um, and recognizing who you're showing up for uh, when it, and, you know, realizing it's not just for yourself. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, knowing that the book was going to be something, you know, in a lot of ways, I didn't do the books to make money. You know, if you're looking to write a book and make money that you might want to check into that idea because it's in a very few cases does it work out that way um i did it because i knew that these books would be valuable to someone you know i came from the place in 2007 where i was incredibly frustrated like i was sort of stuck with these notes that i knew how to take but i didn't know where i was going to go and finding sketchnoting sort of opened up my mind to a different way of thinking and it was there all along which is kind of crazy but knowing that there's other people that might be in that situation and this could be the thing that helps them think differently. That's, you know, another driving factor. Again, it's community. Like it's a community of the future that I don't even know yet that this book is going to be helpful for. That that also drove me to produce it because I knew it's going to help somebody. It's going to be valuable to someone even after I'm gone. You know, I'm not going to be here forever. So this is sort of part of my legacy to my children and to everybody else is producing something that even in the future when I'm long gone could help someone think in a different way. That's, that's really powerful. Mm. I love that. And I think it makes a, a really perfect way to wrap up our conversation. So, uh, as somebody who's listened to me, you know, my final question, what do you think it is, Mike, that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think, um, and this is going to sound really cheesy is, uh, to being, being the most you that is possible, like letting your you-ness come out or yourself come out. Um, I feel like when I am, most true to myself, um, like when I'm up presenting for uh, a workshop or doing a talk, and I'm in the moment, I know I love this stuff I'm talking about, people's lights are going on about how it can maybe work for them. Like I feel the most myself in that moment, um, and there's other times too. And I think a lot of times we, we, sort of, we sort of carry all these burdens, like I think of, uh, you know, like you're wearing armor or someone's expectations, you're carrying it around with you. Uh, and if there's a way that you can sort of let go of that stuff and really be who you are, that's that's the most exciting thing. And I think those people are most unmistakable because they you can really sense that they truly are who they are. Like there's no fakery in there. That's really who they are. And it's so authentic that you can't not be attracted to that, right? It's it's real. That's That's what we all look for, right, is the realness of someone. And if there's something hiding that, you want to sort of chip it away. Hmm. Well, Mike, this has been absolutely fabulous and fascinating, and uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your story and your insights uh, with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. Well, thanks so much for uh, having me on. I'm, I'm excited. It's, it's a real honor to be one of, the, one of the interviewees, having listened to many of these and having many more that I will listen to. It's, it's a pretty huge honor to be on the show. And for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.